Welcome to the Benton Heights Presbyterian Church Podcast. We're excited you've joined us as we hear what God has to say to us through Scripture and this message from Pastor Paul. We're taking a look at relationships today. Let me begin this way. I want to think of relationships in terms of sporting event. Let's say the Olympics. What if they gave out medals for great relationships? What would it take to earn a gold medal? What if for having a great relationship, a great marriage, being a great friend, uh, being a great parent, you're going to stand on a platform, someone's going to play an anthem, and then another person's going to come and put around your neck a medal just because you did something great in a relationship. They ask about equality for Olympic athletes. The best quality is that of dedication. If an Olympic athlete is going to earn a gold medal, it's only going to be after years and years of practice dedication. Do you know what the most important quality of relationships is? It's also dedication, commitment. And one aspect of that dedication and commitment that's talked about in 1 Peter is the quality known as submission. Now, when you hear that word, you get all kind of warm and fuzzy inside, don't you? No, of course not. It's one of the most negative words we can think of in terms of modern relationships. It's one of those words where if you think there's any place in the Bible that's a little outdated, it's when you get to words such as submission. And no wonder. Look up synonyms for that word, and what you come up with is surrender, comply, give in, acquiesce, subservient, not real positive attributes. So it's safe to say that the word submission suffers from an image problem, a word that had a much more positive slant in New Testament times has become predominantly for us almost negative slant. Well, let's get into today's text and see what sense we can make of relationships. This is from 1 Peter, his letter, chapter 3, starting with verse 1. Wives... In the same way, submit yourselves to. Now, other translations will insert the phrase, accept the authority of, be in subjection to. It's the same word we looked at last week in chapter 2 regarding governing authorities. Remember, to submit to means to yield to. A yield sign means that the other person has their way first. It's the mark of a true mature believer if you don't have to have your way all the time. So maybe a good definition for submission, whenever you see that word used in the Bible, would be to have the courage to give up my rights in order to meet another person's needs. Back to our text, wives, in the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. Your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as elaborate hairstyles and the wearing of gold jewelry or fine clothes. Rather, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit which is of great worth in God's sight. For this is the way the holy women of the past who put their hope in God used to adorn themselves. They submitted themselves to their own husbands like Sarah who obeyed Abraham and called him her Lord. You are her daughters 
if you do what is right and do not give way to fear. Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives. Now, let me pause there a second. This is an interesting phrase that be considerate as you live with your wives. It literally means live with your wife according to knowledge. What does that mean? It means get to know her and all about her needs. You may not get how radical this was in the first century. The Apostle Paul echoes much of the same in Ephesians 5 where he calls on all husbands to love their wives. And the Greek word that he uses for love is agape, which is God's love for you. What he's saying is love your wife the same way God loves you, the same way God loves her. See her through God's eyes. Peter goes on, and treat them, your wives, with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life. In essence, what Peter is saying is, husbands, live with your wives as one who knows about their needs and cares about their needs, and live as one who recognizes the delicacy of her nature and her feelings. And then he concludes it with, so that nothing will hinder your prayers. Again, I want you to grasp how radical this is. In the first century world, husbands could divorce their wives for something as simple as burnt toast. And then here comes two of the important leaders of the early church, Paul and Peter. And they say, love her, honor her, just as God does. Now, that's the attitude that deserves a gold medal. What it really boils down to is the ability to be unselfish in our relationships. And that's one of the key ingredients to learning to live God's way. You see, there are three basic ways to live life. One, I can live life my way. I can live my life doing what I want because I want. The result is I'm above everyone else So my way is the selfish way. Or secondly, I can live a life that is subjected. That is, I can live a life another person's way just because they say this is the way I'm supposed to do it and I want to make them happy. So I'm just doing it because I feel I have to. I'm subjected. I'm beneath everyone else. In the New Testament, what Peter is saying is that neither of those works. Instead, be submissive. This is the third way. This is God's way. My way of living uh, or living according to another person's way, neither of those works. A lot of us may think, you know, well, submissive. Isn't that like living another person's way? It's not. Not at all. Living another person's way means you're a doormat. You have other people walk all over you. Whatever they want is what happens That doesn't work. But neither does it work for you to become like a tank and run over everyone else. There's something in between these two extremes, and it's called submissive. Perhaps the right word for use today to supplement would be to say unselfish. Learning to be unselfish in our relationships. So I've just listed out for you three basic ways to live life. Well, 
there are going to be two more sets of three that we want to look at. We want to look at three reasons why we should be unselfish and then three aspects of how to be unselfish. Now, for some of us, selfishness is like, hey, this is working out fine in my life. You're thinking, I'm getting my way. Things are okay. Why would I want to change? Number one, because selfishness is the source of conflict. James, in his New Testament letter, asks, do you know where your fights and quarrels come from? They come from the selfish desires that war within you. I guarantee you that selfishness is the source of most conflicts in your home. Think through all of your arguments, all of your quarrels, in your marriage, in your family, and boil them all down at the root of most all of them, you'll discover that someone, somewhere, is being selfish. Now, of course, in your arguments, it's always the other person who's being selfish, but someone is being selfish, and sometimes it's you. So, in order to bring a new sense of peace to your home and into those relationships that you struggle with, the key to unselfishness will make a difference. If you can find some common ground in the battleground that your home may have become, this will truly help. So that's one reason to combat selfishness. It's the source of conflict. A second reason? Because unselfishness is a secret to change. Peter writes to wives and encourages them, be unselfish so that your husband, if he's an unbeliever, may be won over, that his life would be changed. Change is important in any relationship. It's natural. It's healthy to want to change in our relationships. That's what growth is all about. Even if you've got a good relationship, you should want to change and develop. But if you're really struggling in a relationship, of course, you're desperate for things to change. At this point, Peter assumes something very important. He assumes that these two people are going to stay together and work toward change. Now, I think some people have the feeling that, well, when I got married, I really wasn't seeking God's will, so I'm really wondering if the person that I married is really the person who is God's will for my life. Maybe somehow I missed out on God's will for my life. Now, the assumption behind that statement is God's will for my life must be someone different. That's the feeling that I get. I must have made a wrong turn somewhere. My response to that is, the person you're married to is God's will for your life. The Bible says that when we become married, we become one flesh, and God takes that seriously, and He expects us to. God's will is that we work for change and development and growth where we are. And a third reason to be unselfish is that selfishness short-circuits short prayer. Try saying that three times real fast. Writing to husbands, Peter says, be unselfish, be considerate, be respectful with your wife so that nothing hinders your prayer. Do you see what he's saying? The way that I act toward others affects my relationship with God. You can do it your way with your selfish energy, or you can do it God's way with His boundless energy. Selfishness at its core says, I'm dependent upon myself. 
prayer at its core says, I'm depending upon God. Selfishness then short circuits the power of prayer in our lives because it's a matter of who we're depending upon. You know, it's one thing to say unselfishness is a good idea. I mean, we teach that to our kids, right? But it's quite another thing to be unselfish. It's a struggle. So, our final set of threes. As you look through this passage and other biblical passages where relationships are spoken of and what it takes to make them work, there are three areas of advice that begin to get us down this road of unselfishness. And I'm speaking as a fellow struggler. These are the how-tos. Number one, be considerate of other people's needs. Consider other people's needs. In verse 7, Peter tells husbands to live together according to knowledge. Earlier I said that means to know and care about the other person. Well, how? How do you begin to care more about the other person's needs? In order to do that, you've got to develop a very important skill, listening. When you and I begin to learn to listen, we develop this skill of being able to care for other people's needs. That's something I certainly struggle with. And a bit of advice when it comes to developing the skill of listening, you have to work at it. Listening doesn't come naturally for anyone. There is no one who is naturally a good listener. We all naturally care more about what we're thinking than what the other person is saying. If you're going to be a good listener, you have to work at it. But developing that skill of listening will make you into the kind of person that will begin to care more about the needs of another person. And if you can really hear what they're saying, then you can hear their needs and begin to consider them. Number two, the second way to become unselfish is to honor another person's value. Again, verse 7, Peter writes to husbands and says, they are heirs with you of the, of the gracious gift of life. Now, I may know of someone's needs, but I'm not going to begin to meet their needs if I don't value them. Let me be clear. This is not about devaluing yourself. It doesn't say, okay, well, pretend that you aren't valuable or that you don't matter, your needs aren't important. It just says to give more honor to others. We use the word appreciate when it comes to financial things to mean that they increase in value. We need to do that to people. Appreciate them. Raise their value in our eyes. Take time to appreciate others. Give more honor to them than to yourself. Recognize that their needs are just as important as yours, and so raise the value of that other person. And number three is to act on another person's behalf. There is a huge difference between unselfish words and unselfish actions. It's easy to talk, even to plan unselfish things, but unselfish Actions involve sacrifice. In 1 John, we hear, let us stop just saying we love each other. Let us really show it by our actions. This is where most of us struggle. Because it's easy to say, I want to meet your needs. It's easy to say, I value you and I love you deeply with my whole heart. That makes us feel good. Sacrificial words make us feel good. 
It's sacrificial actions that scare us to death. And the challenge is not to be ready for the one big sacrifice you may have to make one day in your relationship. The challenge is to consistently, constantly make the little ones. In relationships that work, they involve hundreds of little sacrifices. Is it easy? No. We need God's strength to do this. It means learning to take personal responsibility for my own attitudes, my own words, my own thoughts, my own choices. It means learning to express disagreement in a way that's not demanding, that isn't attacking, that isn't a put-down. And speaking the truth in love means receiving each other honestly, not as a threat, not as, oh, here's somebody against me. It means this person is on my team. Speaking the truth in love means they have my best interests at heart. For Lori and me, I can't begin to tell you how many times we've had to ask forgiveness from each other for our selfishness. And individually, both of us have had to learn how to let God's love begin to touch those unfinished places in our lives. We're far from perfect. We mess up on a regular basis. In less than a month, we will celebrate 37 years of marriage. And I know looking at me, you're thinking, wow, you must have been just a baby when you got married. We're still in process. But we're finally settling in on the idea that we're on the same team. For many of you, this could be a real turning point in your relationship with someone with whom you've been struggling for a long time. For some of you, this is going to be a turning point eternally in your relationship with Jesus Christ, the one who loves you most. But if that's going to happen, there's something you're going to have to learn to let go of. To be unselfish you must let go of fear. Now, it's scary to be unselfish. The fear is, if I'm unselfish, they may take advantage of me. If I'm unselfish, it's just not that I'm giving myself. I, I may lose myself. How do you find the strength to get past the fear of being unselfish? First John again. We need to have no fear of someone who loves us perfectly. Oh, so all you got to do is find somebody who loves you perfectly. Well, guess what? Somebody already does love you personally and perfectly. And his name is Jesus Christ. Do you know him? Do you know of what great love he has for you? Jesus Christ is a real person. And he really is God with us. And only as God could Jesus become the perfect sacrifice for our sin. The Bible says God made him, that is Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin for us. That means he took on the weight of all of our sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What that means is that good works, morality, Philosophy, spirituality, even religion will not get you to God. There's only one way. God came down to 
to our level. And on the cross of Jesus Christ, we are forgiven and freed. He loves you perfectly. Won't you step into that love? Just say, dear Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner. I want to turn my life over to you. Come into my life. Amen. We hope you found this message to be encouraging. We'd love for you to join us on Sunday mornings. Find us on Facebook and Instagram and at bhprez.org for more information.